You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Christ, he uh, was a wealthy man, he was a good man, he had a large family, he had a high place in the community, and he lost all of that. His uh, children died, his wealth was taken away, his status was taken away, his health was taken away. And most of the book of Job is a poem or reflections between Job and his friends asking, you know, just why does this happen? And uh, Job is in the middle of responding to one of those speeches when we come in in chapter 31. These are the last words that Job says in his defense. So let me begin just uh, by asking God's blessing on us as we uh, look at this passage. Lord, thank you that we're able to be here. Thank you for the babies in the creche and for the children in the Sunday school. Thank you for each one of us here. Grant, O God, that whatever our motivation for being here and whatever our personal circumstances, whatever our ups and downs, whatever our angers and our fears and our frustrations and our joys and our sorrows and our worries, whatever, O Lord, grant that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, it's a truism. We all want to be loved. I want to be loved, okay? And when I do this kind of job, you want to be loved. I did a wedding yesterday, and people came up afterwards and went, that was nice. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they were really bored, or if it was just something that they really wanted to say, or if they really thought it was totally wonderful. I have no idea what that means. Please do not come up to me at the end of the service and go, that was nice, because I'll jar you. No, <laughs> that's just that, that word. I don't know what that means, but we want to be loved. I, I, I'm a preacher, and uh, I don't want to hear what I do is rubbish. You know, we all like to be loved for whatever we do. Trouble is, we live in an age where... People, sometimes we have to do things that people don't want to hear, uh, Christians included as well. So as I was looking at this, I was, I was thinking, this is not, people are not going to like this. And the temptation always is to tone it down. There's a temptation to go the other way, to uh, try and make it really obnoxious. But as a preacher of God's word, my job is to teach what is in the Bible and God speaks to you through it. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable and easy, and some of us get really frustrated. We don't like what we hear. We say it's not relational enough, or it's not doctrinal enough, or it's not meeting my needs, or uh, we get to a state where we say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church, and so on. And the trouble is, I find an awful lot of people who say they love Jesus don't listen to Jesus. They listen to themselves, and they invent their own personal Jesus. And I read this this morning, and I thought it was very helpful. It's from Eugene Peterson, from a book, Run With the Horses. The task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. The function of religion is not to make people feel good, but to make them good. Love? Yes, God loves us. But his love is passionate and seeks faithful, committed love in return. This is the bit that struck me. God does not want tame pets 
to fondle and feed. He wants mature, free people who will respond to him in authentic individuality. For that to happen, there must be honesty and truth. The self must be toppled from its pedestal. There must be pure hearts and clear intelligence, confession of sin and commitment in faith. There must be honesty. And God doesn't want a pet. He doesn't want you just say, oh, that's nice. They're like my pet. He wants a real human being created in his image who loves him freely. And I like Peterson's phrase, authentic individuality. Not just because they're part of a herd. But for that to happen, there has to be honesty and truth and self has to be toppled from its pedestal. So having said that, let's go to Job 31. Uh, it's, we'll go through it fairly quickly. And we're going to go through it in this idea that Job is speaking in his defense. And I want you to think about how we defend ourselves. We are very, very defensive people. You come up to me afterwards and you say something, we'll be very defensive. If I come up to you and criticize one of your children, you'd be very defensive. We're very defensive about ourselves, about our work, uh, and we are like that. But I want to approach this by asking two questions as we go through the whole of this chapter. One is, what's wrong with the world? And the other is, what's wrong with me? And I ask you just to bear with it, hold with it as we go through all of this, and I hope that you'll be conscious of God speaking to you. I want you to imagine that you are standing before God on the day of judgment, and you have to give account of every word said and every deed done. There are no excuses and there's no hiding. What will you say? Because when I defend myself, it's like... How will I put it? It is kind of like hiding. It's kind of like being very, very unreal. So, first of all, let's go on to... We'll just go, I'll read it as we go along and comment, say some things as we go about it. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? There is uh, this program that you can get for the internet called Covenant Eyes, based on this passage, which is a kind of an accountability program to stop you looking at internet porn and things like that. Uh, I, I actually knew somebody who used to install it, and he phoned me up one day in absolute tears of laughter. And, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, I've just installed Covenant Eyes on this home computer for somebody and he said, it's banned the Free Church website. <laughs> and it's banned you. <laughs> Which I, I think because I, in a sermon or in an article, mentioned sex once, and it automatically went, nope, kind of that, it's gone. Um, that's not what Job is doing here. Job is doing something that it, it's a kind of, it's a negative confession. It's what's called an oath of purgation. It was used in Hebrew law like uh, if for Samuel chapter 2 when Samuel does that. I, I haven't done this. It's an appeal to God. And Job comes to God and he says, what have I done? What have I done that's so wrong? What have I done that all these things have happened to me? Maybe my friends are right. And he said, this is what I've done in my innocence. He said, I, I've made a covenant with my eyes. 
Now, there's a whole list in chapter 31 that follows from this. It's not a list of every sin that ever could be. It's a poem of a man living on a rubbish dump. He's not logically working through everything. He's just expressing how he feels. And this is the first thing that comes to his mind. He, he affirms his innocence and his ethical purity. He uses this if clause, if I've done this, if I've done this, if I've done this. He uses it 14 times in the chapter. And he's talking not just about his actions, but also his attitudes. Now, maybe some people will say, well, Job goes too far. Why doesn't he just admit he's a sinner? Well, be honest. We, there are religious people here, and what you do is this. You go, I am a sinner, and you'll sing about sin, and you'll confess the sin that we do in the morning, and you'll do all of that. But if I came to you, or anyone came to you, and started pointing out some of your sins directly and personally to you, you would get really angry. You would get really upset. Because what you've done is you've compartmentalized sin into something religious that can be dealt with and you can forget about. But in actual fact, it's something that goes very, very deep. And he says, Job is, is professing his innocence. He says, I don't lust, in effect. He's not sinned, literally, he's not sinned by desiring a virgin. He was a master in a patriarchal culture where women were often regarded as purchases. And he had many, many servant girls. So he could lust after them if he wished. He could sleep with them if he wished. And he said, I didn't do that. He said, not only did I not do that, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at any girl. Why is he so meticulous? Because he knows that looking leads to desire in the heart. He knows that it leads to lust. Proverbs 6.25 Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. Matthew 5.28 Jesus says this I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'll make a confession. Two things. First of all, I've never committed adultery. Not in the sense that legally I've never committed that. And I hope I never ever will. I pray that God would keep me from that. By the standard of Jesus though, I have, and so have many other people, probably most people, most normal people will have in some way or other. Job says, I made a covenant not to do that. Chapter 7 verse 19, will you never look away from me or let me alone? for an instant. Job is not driven by the fear of man, but he's driven by the fear of God. Now, we need to grasp this in this area because our society is highly sexualized in every single way. And because of modern technology, it means that that hammers us at every single corner. We're supposed to be living in an advanced progressive society. Last month in Switzerland, two of the Swiss cantons agreed to open up what they called um, sex boxes. You drive by, you look at your prostitute, you pick your prostitute, and then you go into this box. And then you pay, 
and then you go away. And this is all done in the name of health and safety, and prostitution is going to happen anyway, and so on. Can you imagine how degrading? I, I'm always, I grew up on a farm, and I've gone to a market and prodded cattle and looked at them and examined them and saying, well, this one's got a good hind, and this one's this, and this one's this. Can you imagine as a woman standing there and men are coming back saying, yeah, okay, I'll pay for that one. It's, and that's done in a, in a modern, contemporary, progressive culture. A colleague of mine got it, was involved in a debate on this issue and he used the term prostitute and he was told he was not allowed to use that term. The term is now sex worker because it's an industry now and there's a union for it and so on. Well, I don't blame the prostitutes in that sense. I blame the culture and ourselves for allowing that. People mock and laugh at Christians who talk about dressing modestly. I'm sorry, but it's become ever more necessary for us to do that, to be counter-cultural in the way that we go. And the question there, just simply on this one, Job says, I don't. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to lust. And I just ask simply, at this point, if you were standing before God, could you honestly say, I didn't lust this past week. I didn't. I don't. I don't look. I don't go out, do internet porn. I don't look at people and I don't desire my neighbor's wife or whatever it is. No, no, I don't go there. Well, if, if you can say that, good. But if you can't, then we need to go on and see where that leads us. The second thing is he talks about deceit, verses 5 to 8. If I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I'm blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. When the word scales here is used in the Bible, that's usually referring to business transactions. And he's talking about, verse 7 again, the eyes, the heart being led by the eyes. He's saying, my eyes are innocent, my feet are innocent, I didn't use deceit in my business. Ravi Zacharias says, everywhere he goes over the world, he asks the people, what's the number one problem in this culture? And the number one problem is always corruption. Corruption, deceit, and in business. You, you know what it's like if you get an honest mechanic, how wonderful that is, or an honest lawyer, how wonderful that is, or an honest business person, or an honest politician. But our culture is pervaded through with corruption and deceitfulness. Who may ascend, says Psalm 24, the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. It's funny because there are people who say, I, 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 yeah, you're right, I don't do the internet porn thing, I don't do any of that. But they cheat on their business and they cheat on their taxes and they're dishonest. And again, if we were to stand before God and God was to say, well, did you use honest scales when you made your money? Did you lie? Did you cheat? Did you rob people? I wonder how many of us would be completely innocent in that respect. And then he goes on to another key area in our culture, marriage. 
If my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain and may another, other men sleep with her. For that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. In patriarchal societies such as Job's, adultery was a serious crime. Sex was for marriage and for marriage only. Sleeping with someone else's wife or someone else's husband was wrong. In our culture, there is a fundamental attack on the Christian idea of marriage. Marriage is based on trust and fidelity. Not on, as happened in Job's culture, the wife was property, but not on, as happens in our culture, where that whole aspect of trust When our our government has redefined marriage and is redefining marriage, and um, I would value your prayer this week because I've been asked to appear before the Scottish Parliament Committee looking at this to answer some questions uh, on that. But our government, the British government and the Scottish government, have both managed to redefine marriage so that it excludes sex, it's sexless, so that it excludes children, it's childless, and so that it excludes fidelity because adultery is no longer grounds for divorce so that it's faithless. How did we end up in a culture which says that marriage is sexless, childless, and faithless? It's absolutely insane. And yet, that has what has happened. Paul says, uh, not Paul, but Job says, this is a fire that burns to destruction. It consumes a man's soul, destroys his reputations, his conscience, his body, his family relationships, his future, and even his increase. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So it is with he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. And there we stand before God on the day of judgment. And we have to answer whether we have kept his commandment to honor the marriage bed. In all different kinds of ways. Now I think that we will... Many of us would be standing, and if we were being completely honest, and if we were forced to stand in the presence of God, we would say, depart from me, Lord, for I am unclean. We're going to sing about that. We're going to sing a song, Psalm 51, which uh, David, the psalmist, wrote after he had given in to lust and deceit and adultery, and he was pleading with the Lord to forgive him. Oh my God, have mercy on me. In your steadfast love, I pray. Stephen's going to lead us again. We'll stand and sing, and the tune is Ottawa. Job continues, and he's now thinking not just of what we might consider some more obvious sins, but also many others that go on. So verse uh, 13 to 15. If I've denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Job recognizes the rights of his servants to take him to court. He recognizes the rights of women to justice as well as men. He goes beyond the customs of his time and he recognizes human beings as equals, not as possessions. 
We talk about equality. Our culture talks about equality all the time. Everyone, you're into equality and diversity. Those of you who are in, you know, go to companies or you're going to social work or medicine or teaching or whatever, you'll get equality and diversity and equality and diversity and equality and diversity all the time. And it's not. It's not equality. I don't think our culture is a culture in which equality is growing. In fact, what's happening in our culture is astonishing. We're finding even financially, we're finding that there is uh, uh, tremendous inequality occurring all the time. There's a basic equality that comes out of the Bible. Our society talks about equality but doesn't fundamentally practice it. The 1776 American Declaration of Independence says this, all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Human rights mean nothing unless they are based upon the fact that God is our creator. We live in different social circumstances. Some of you, your major concern is what you're going to, where you're going to put your third car. Some of you, your major concern is where you're going to find your next meal. We all live in very different circumstances, but we are all made the same way. In chapter 10, Job has spoken of the wonder in which, the way in which God made him in the womb. Now he speaks of everyone the same way. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. There's a dignity, equality, and responsibility that comes from the word of God. Amos 5 says this, God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. In this city, if you're, well, if you're new to this city, welcome. It's a great city. It uh, would be a far worse city if it were not for the fact that when the mills were built here, some of the mill owners were converted. And they realized that they should treat their workers with a great deal more dignity than they had done. And one of the things what has happened is that Baxter built Baxter Park, Caird built Caird Park. And they were built there for a reason, to give fresh air to their workers. That's why we've got them. And these were men who were driven by their Christian consciences. We stand before God and God says, do you treat all human beings as made in my image? Do you treat all human beings with dignity and respect? And particularly, he goes on to remember the Talk about the poor. If I've denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father and from my birth I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep. If, my, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such a thing. Giving food and clothing, taking orphans into his home. Earlier in this book, Job's friend Eliphaz had accused Job of not caring for the poor. And Job says, let my arm be broken off at the shoulder, if that's true. 
I've helped the poor. And again, in our culture, we need to think about this really. Our culture talks about equality, but our culture doesn't practice it. Our economy is not geared for it. Our society will talk all the time about the poor, but who are the ones who will suffer most because of the current economic crisis? It will be the poor. And the state cannot and will not provide. James 1.27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And we stand before God, and God says, what is your defense? Can we say, well, I respected the poor, and I helped the poor. And then he continues, in terms of that dishonesty, if I put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security, if I've rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. Eliphaz had earlier suggested there was a mean streak in Job, that his wealth had become an idol in place of God. And Job says, no, that didn't happen. Jesus warns it, it can very easily happen. Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't we live in a culture that's obsessed with money? Don't you get told, study this, do this, take this job because you'll get more money? Don't we say, well, they're worth it? Is there any person in this world who is prepared to justify paying Gareth Bale 300000 a week? for kicking a pig's bladder around. Come on, 85 million pounds. This is from Spain, a country where there's 50% youth unemployment and a football club manages to pay 85 million pounds for a Welsh footballer. Now, nothing against the Welsh, but how does that make any sense in any sane universe? But we don't live in a sane universe. We live in an insane world. We live in a culture that's obsessed with what money can buy. Now, none of us, I don't think, are Gareth Bale. And if you are, your tithe is welcome. Sign up at the back. But we will clear that building deficit in two weeks. So <laughs> Maybe I'll rethink. No. <laughs> none of us. We're not that massively wealthy. But I'll tell you this. I'll bet you that most of us think about money a lot. We stand before God. Is money our God? He goes on, if I've regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then there also would be sins to be judged. These also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. It was normal in the ancient world to worship the heavenly bodies. My hand offered them a kiss of homage. It was normal to kiss idols, but because you couldn't reach the sun and the moon, you would kiss your hand like that, and then held it up to the sun and the moon and extend it to them. To blow a kiss was to worship the sun and the moon. And we say, ah, we've progressed. We're not in that pagan culture. You are joking. Go into any of the local bookshops. Go and go to a humanist funeral or go and, and listen to some of the new age guff that spouted 
all over the place where people go, oh, I, I feel on the wind of the breeze and all this kind of stuff. It's like, you're, you know, you've got to be dressed in, in you know, Indian clothes and, and, and just be at peace with nature, man. You know, no, that, that's not progress and advancing and becoming one with nature. That's paganism. That's reverting back to the kind of disastrous culture that almost destroyed this nation and other nations. And so we stand before God and God says, do you worship my creation or do you worship me? Is it Gaia, Mother Earth, or is it God? Job goes on, if I've rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. Again, here he's talking about vindictiveness. Proverbs 24 says, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. Sometimes, again, we, we, don't we live in a culture where there's this justice of vengeance, where in a tribal culture, you kill my son, I kill yours, and I kill your daughter, then you kill my relatives, then I, is, is that the kind of world that we want to live in, where there's vengeance? Can anyone see any end to the Syrian conflict as long as people see killing as a means to bring justice? There's no end to it. I love watching the West Wing, and there's a great scene in the West Wing where President Bartlett, and if you don't know the West Wing, you really need to get cultured and, and start watching it. It's so worth it. Uh, president Jed Bartlett, who's the best U.S. president ever, uh, he is um, being prepped for a presidential debate, and Toby, who's the kind of grumpy, middle-aged, fat guy with a beard, um, I feel so much empathy with him, uh, he... He comes and he's, he's to prep him for this particular debate. And he says, it's actually a wind-up. President Barlow had bet he wouldn't be able to uh, do this without losing his temper. And Toby says to him, President Bartlett, if your daughter was raped and killed, would you still be against the death penalty? And Bartlett deliberately mumbles about, well, I, I'm not in that position. I'm, uh, uh, it's not the president who makes it's the Supreme Court justice who makes that decision. And Toby yells at him. He said, my goodness, you've lost it completely. Your daughter's just been killed. You say, yes, 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 I would want to kill them. I would want to deal with them. That's why I shouldn't have, be able to do it. That's why I shouldn't have that power. That's why there should be law and there should be justice. And it's a great illustration of a culture in which if you take away law and justice, you end up with vengeance and you end up with the powerful ruling. You'll pay for this. You'll pay for this. You'll pay. What defense do the poor have in our housing schemes from the drug dealers or the loan sharks? Only if there is justice, only if there is a police force, only if there is proper law. Not, as Job says, gloating at my enemy. And deliberately ignoring the needs of others. If the men of my household have never said, who has not had his fill of Job's meat, but no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. Basic, this is basic Christianity, by the way. Hospitality. Share with God's people, says Paul to the Romans. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Jesus, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, 
and you invited me in. Job says no guest at my table had ever gone away hungry. Again, I think we live in a self-absorbed and individualistic culture in which hospitality is devalued. Someone else will provide. The state provides. We pay our taxes. No, we provide. And we stand before God and God says, what did you do with the gifts I gave you, with that nice house, with that money, with that food? What did you do? Hypocrisy. If I've concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. As men do, that's literally as Adam did. If I concealed my sin as Adam did. Job is not worried that the tabloids are on his trail. Hypocrisy. J.C. Ryle says this, there seems nothing which is so displeasing to Christ as hypocrisy and unreality. Can you stand before God and say, Lord, I'm not a hypocrite. I came to church and I sang those songs and I read my Bible and everyone thinks I'm a Christian. And I am. And I didn't do all the things that I am accused of. In my view, we live in an unreal, fantastical, hypocritical culture. And we as Christians have to be absolutely, solidly real. Not fake, not pretend religious, but for real. If my land cries out against me, and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I've devoured its yield without payment, or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat, and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. The land weeps, because of injustice. Job's reminding us of the importance of land and of private property and the responsible use of land. He's saying, I didn't eat produce without payment and I didn't take other people's land. And that's Christianity in practice as well because Christianity does believe in private property and the dignity of individuals and people working. In our culture... We've created a world in which the top 1% now have something like 85% of the wealth. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. You say to people, oh, you don't need property. You don't need, you know, you just, the state will provide for you. It's not the way. It will never work. The rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And we stand before God and God says, are you seeking to work hard to provide for yourselves and for others? Maybe some people say, well, I don't have a job. Are you looking for a job? You're still able to work. You're still able to help people, still able to do things. And some people will think, I don't need a job. I've got plenty of money. But we're still here to help other people. There's so much poverty and so much injustice that you'll never be short of things to do and people to help. So Job signs off. And maybe, in fact, certainly I think, he has gone too far in the sense of asserting his own complete innocence. I think he does recognize that there is sin. You read through the previous chapters. He does recognize the heart and mind must be guarded. He does recognize all these things. And he prays that God would turn his eyes away 
from worthless things, as Psalm 119 puts it. But you see, the thing is here, we live in the presence of God, and He knows everything about us. Just a few of those sins, you may have different ones that you'd want to talk about. I think that Job is showing great courage here, actually, and integrity and faith. I think he's going to God and he's saying, judge me, O Lord, please, judge me. I can't cope with this anymore. Just judge me. Show me where I've gone wrong. I think he's aware of God's omniscience, God's ability to see everything, God's judgment, God's creative power, God's majesty, God's existence. And he says, this is my defense. This is my defense. Earlier on, he'd said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. And I'm sure that that is also in his mind. So what's your defense? Is your defense that you're completely innocent? That you're never greedy, you're never lustful, never bad-tempered, you're always hospitable, you're never hypocritical, you, 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 you live this solid, righteous, good, perfect life? If that's your defense, you're lying. You're not that. I'm not that. We're not that. That cannot be your defense. Religion cannot be your defense. Your good works cannot be your defense. You cannot stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I did this, and think that that will get you into heaven. I, 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 I hear so many people, and they go things, say things like, well, if there was a God, I would ask him this, and if, if God challenged me, I would challenge him back. You will not stand before God on the day of judgment and judge God. That's not what happens. He will judge you. He will look at all the things he has granted to you, all the gifts he has given, and he will say, what do you do with them? And you will call out to the rocks to fall on you because you have no defense. If you're not a believer just now, how are you going to answer God on the day of judgment? I, I can't think of a more important question for you than that. How will you answer God? And it's no use you saying, well, I'm not a believer. I don't believe there is a day of judgment. There is a day of judgment, and you're being told about it. How will you answer God? And if you are a believer, maybe you're like me. I look at this, and sometimes I hang my head in shame. Not always. Not always that humble. But sometimes I hang my head in shame. And sometimes I weep. And sometimes I say, Lord, I let you down. I know all this stuff. You've shown it to me. I know how I should live. I know what I should do. What do I go and do? The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. How? What's my defense? I have no defense except this. My only defense is Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. doesn't mean we don't care about sin. It means we care about our sins all the more because they matter to Christ. It means when we see injustice and wrong and evil and twistedness, when we see women being treated like cattle, when we see people being abused, when we see children being mistreated, we, we, we rage and we weep and we are distressed because we know that that's what God sees and what God feels. But we're not hypocrites. We don't stand up and say, I'm better than those people. We say, yeah, the heart of darkness is within me also. And I can't get rid of it by myself. But there's somebody who did. 
there's somebody who came and someone who died for my sin and someone who took all my grief and pain, someone who took all my sin, someone who took all my sorrow, and he carried it. And he's cast it away from me. He's cast it away from God. So I'm forgiven. So I stand before God. What is my defense? I'm going to stand before God and just simply say this, Jesus, that's it. I'm sorry. I have no other defense but Jesus. And God will say, welcome, good and faithful servant, into your inheritance. Because it's the inheritance that Jesus purchased. Now, please, if you are a Christian, do not take sin lightly, but do not be destroyed by the accuser. Jesus has taken all your sin, and you go from this place free from sin and free to serve and free in the knowledge that during this next week you will let Jesus down again, you will do things wrong again, and yet he still, he died for that sin too, not just the sins in your past. And again, I just plead with you if you're not a Christian, how? How are you going to stand before God? How are you going to deal with this evil and twistedness and sin that's in the world and within you? Without Christ, there is absolutely nothing. You can make as many covenants with your eyes, do as many good deeds as you want. But without Christ, your defense is useless. And with Christ, it's perfect. You've got him, you've got everything. May God bless his word to us. I'm going to ask Chris to come and pray for us before we finish. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.